Hey everybody, welcome to the Eurasian Americans. This is your host, Jerry Wan. Before we get to our conversation with Sopan Depp today, I want to share with you a new nonprofit organization that is really out there trying to help the residents and the businesses of Chinatown in New York City. And they are Welcome to Chinatown. Now, welcome to Chinatown right now is raising funds to help keep Chinatown businesses open and running by ordering food from them to deliver to senior citizens and other residents who desperately need to have food delivered. Learn more, get involved at welcometochinatown.com. There is a GoFundMe there with an ambitious goal of $100,000. They're almost at the halfway mark as of this recording, close to $45,000. So again, go check them out at welcometochinatown.com. Shout out to my friend, Harry Trin, who is their designer of the brand new logo and the person who let me know about this great movement. So thanks, Harry, and thanks to all the amazing people at Welcome to Chinatown. And now, here my conversation with New York Times writer, comedian, and author of the book Mistranslations, Sopan Deb. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans, everybody. Hope you are doing well, wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this. Um, we're recording this in the middle of April, where Sopan is, or where our guest is today in, in New York and where I am in LA. You know, things are pretty quiet and good for reason, or for good reason, rather. We're all doing our part to make sure that we can get out of this challenging times out of here. Um, for many of you who are listening, this might be the first time, whether you're a high school student or a college student, uh, that you're spending a lot of time with your parents or you're spending a lot of time with your kids. And you might be forced to or having to realize that you're having conversations that you never thought you needed to have or asking questions of each other that you um, didn't want to ask. Uh, many of us growing up, children of immigrants or refugees or um, with that cultural disconnect with our parents, never really know who our parents are um, for good and bad reason. I think there's a lot of desire from their end to protect us from what they consider unnecessary or hurtful information. And our guest today decided to not only have that conversation with his parents at the age of 30, but decided to write a book about it for the whole world to read. You may have heard or seen him um, as he reported during the 2016 presidential um, election for CBS News. You might be a big fan of his because he writes about basketball for the New York Times. He is our guest today, so I would love to welcome Sopan Depp to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Hope your family is safe and you're doing okay in uh, quarantining. Uh, we're, we're doing okay. LA is a little quiet. Um, you know, it's it's a concerning, obviously. Um, but this, I guess, the last 24, 48 hours, um, just to give a context of when this is happening, is, um, you know, Jacksonville beaches are open. People are demonstrating across the country by hanging out with each other, which is odd from, from where I sit. But, um, you know, most of us, I think that the overwhelming majority of us know that staying home and um, keeping our distance is is the best that we can help. So let's learn about Sopan in the early years. I think we look at your resume now. Um, New York Times, you're a um, part-time or in addition to being a stand-up comic, been on TV, you've been a good representative of the community in the media space. Where did that all come from? How did the Depp family move to America and where did you spend your early years growing up? Um, well, to be honest, growing, I, so I grew up in, I was born outside of Boston, but I grew up in suburban New Jersey. Um, to be honest, when I was growing up, I knew very little about how my parents, um, came to this country. I later found out that, uh, you know, they came separately 
you know, my dad came here uh, to be an engineer against his family's wishes. Hmm. Um, and then my mom moved here and, you know, I think a couple years after my dad did. And the reason they met was that uh, my dad put an ad in a in newspaper while he was living in New Jersey. He had just gotten one of his first engineering jobs. He said, you know, he was, he was lonely and he was looking for a job. And excuse me, I'm looking for a wife, excuse me. So we put an ad in an in a Indian uh, a marriage newspaper. I think it was called uh, Parat Matrimony. And my grandmother on my mother's side answered the ad on my mom's behalf without my mother knowing about it. And wow. so my, you know, uh, I think something like a dozen women answered the ad. Uh, my dad looks, opens up the, um, opens up the letter from my grandmother. He likes what he sees. So he flies to Toronto where my mother and grandmother and her brother are living. Get, essentially knocks on the door and my mother meets him and is like, who are you? What are you doing here? And essentially my dad's like, Oh, we're, we're getting married. You know, that is essentially how my parents got together. And my mother did not want to get married to my father. Didn't want to get married at all. She wanted to, um, so they were a bad match from the start. And so they had this very toxic arranged marriage. Now, in normal circumstances that you and I know from growing up here in the United States, you know, you could get divorced in a month if the marriage is that bad. Mm. And this marriage was that bad. But divorce is stigmatized, particularly in the South Asian community. So they stayed together for 30 years. Uh, they had two kids. Because remember, a lot of arranged marriages are more transactional at first, right? Mm. It's not a, they're not love marriages, so to speak. Um, the love comes later. And in the case of my parents, that never happened. So uh, my parents, uh, you know, they had two kids. They got divorced when I was in high school. I grew up in a, in the suburbs of New Jersey knowing very little about them. I didn't know their ages, their birthdays. We rarely ate dinners together. We rarely interacted. It was like living with college roommates that you don't really know that well. And it was, um, you know, it was unusual to say the least. And the reason I knew it was unusual is that I'd go to all my white friends' houses and they're having, they're having to eat dinner together and talking about, you know, talking about crushes and talking about therapy and, and, and talking about their days. And the dads are coaching them in Little League and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't have that. And I was like, oh, so this is what a family is supposed to do. Oh, this is weird. So that is essentially how I grew up. Uh, it was a very unusual thing. That I didn't realize how unusual it was until I'd see how everyone else in the community was doing it. So you have a brother who is nine years older than you. Presumably, he left home to attend college when you were nine. So, you know, what is that? Third, fourth grade. Yeah. Um, how was life at home pre and post him leaving? You know, my brother and I have always had a good relationship. Uh, his name is Satik. Um, he and I are very different personality wise. There's a generational difference. I don't want to say generational. I mean, he's nine years older. <laughs> but uh, we were never we've, we until now, we've never been in the same space in life. So when mm -hmm. I was five, he was entering high school when uh, I was. Eight, he was entering college. Uh, when I was entering college, he's getting married and he's about to have his first kid, you know? Um, so we've always been in different spaces in life. Um, so before he left the house, he was essentially my father, both because of the gap that my own father left in that mm. work close and B, because of the age difference. So my brother actually, you know, would play catch with me and coach me in sports or whatever. And then once he left the house, you know, he left the house and the dynamic in the house changed. 
he, my brother went off to be an adult. I stayed in the you know house and did, did my thing. Um, so my brother, uh, he didn't, he wasn't around for as the marriage reached kind of peak toxicity after, after, you know, after he left, you know, in, I, I don't want to give away, of course, we want people to read the book, so I will leave out all the fun details. But some of the details that you touch about the story that you just shared about going over to your white friends' houses and just, you know, I remember when you, you shared, there was a mom who was asked, pulled you aside and said, hey, I'm worried for my my son. He's not making enough friends. And and then she goes, I want him to go make out with somebody. Yeah. And, and that's a shock because. I mean, did your did your parents encourage you to go make out with people as, as in. Oh, hell no. I was like, how do I make it sound like it's a boy calling and not a girl calling? Yeah, because that's exactly right. Totally. Right? then it's like, you know, you got to hide stuff and, you know, any yeah. name they get, they're like, oh, who is that? Who is that? Who is that? Yeah. And it's, that was back when you didn't have a cell phone, right? Or no, of course not. People yeah. used to call on landline. Yeah. You'd be like, uh, hi, this is, uh, you know, so-and-so, Sopan there. Oh, yeah. that's his bedtime. He can't talk right now. Or uh, they'd like be on the other line, right? They'd listen, yeah. they'd pick up the, one of the other phones in the house and you could listen to everyone's conversation. Oh my God. Yeah. There, there was some, I mean, for all the, that, uh, geez, uh, for all the Gen Z and, and younger folks listening, we had to do some crazy shit, um, to, to <laughs> talk to friends and, and girls. I mean, the, the trick of you calling somebody else's phone so that when your friend called, it was call waiting so that the house phone wouldn't ring. Like, right. Stuff like right. that. Like, <laughs> gosh. Oh my gosh. I totally. Stupid stuff, crazy, right? Like, man. like we had yeah. to run some sophisticated spy. Like, you had accomplices and your friends trying to help you out. Yeah. Well, well, for me, uh, and I, I realize we're getting off topic, but <laughs> for me, like, AIM, Aliens yeah. was a game changer. Oh, of course it was. Because, because my mom and dad did not know what that was. My mom didn't even know how to turn on the computer, right? So, so like for me, I could do talk to any girls that I had a crush on or had a crush on me, whatever. Yeah. I could do it all on eight. Yeah. You know, and so uh, that's anyway, we're getting off. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, and, and one thing, I mean, everything about the cellular phone right now is unlimited, but there was a time when daytime and evening minutes existed. So you could only call your friends after nine. And yes! that was when like everybody talked to each other. 901, boom, you start calling your friends. Yes! So consider yourselves lucky if you're, however you're listening to this on your mobile or on your desktop, you know, Sopan, right. me and a whole bunch of other people in our thirties, we, we, we had a struggle uh, to have friends and, and to uh, do, do childish, uh, you know, teenager stuff. Yeah. But but I think that does give a context into the world we grew up, right? Like you grew up in a home where there was not only uh, generational differences because um, the, the age gap between you and your parents were not 20, you know, 20, they didn't have you very young. So there was that, but there also was a cultural gap yeah. of, um, it, it's a two thing that two phased difference that I think so many of us go through. Um, they, they mean well, we don't see that when we're younger. Um, the things that they pressure us to do or encourage us to do are playbooks that made sense for them when they were growing up back home in their decade. In, in the fifties and sixties and seventies. Correct. Right? Like in, yep. in, in another part of the world, particularly in India back then when it was still British controlled, like none of it makes sense. Right. Like, so for my parents, it was like post-war Korea in the seventies. And it was like, you can't, they don't even know how to then translate that to how to raise kids in America in the nineties. Um, and part of that also, I think, is in terms of a cultural difference, is that I think in, in both in in for both of us, in the culture that our parents came from, is one where parents are deified in a way, that, absolutely, in a way that like my white friends growing up 
that's not that's not where their parents come from. Right. It's it's way more of a focus on you know you know I mean I I, I have you know you read about people whose grandmothers are like the matriarch of the family <laughs> like yeah. for the, until the day the grand grandmother's no longer around. Right? right. And that's the culture that my parents came from. I imagine your parents were the same thing. Whereas, you know, if you are, if, if your parents grew up here and your grandparents grew up here, it's a lot more of a focus on the individual rather than the family, sure. of the core, a core unit. Sure. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of us, um, feel challenged or frustrated or um, frustrated, I guess is the right word, when the things that we want to do or pursue in college and beyond are at conflicts with what our parents want us to do. And many times, you know, most of us find our way to that eventually. But for too many of us, it's my dad said I have to go to X grad school or study this. And we let that win. Or it's for the, you know, for a number of different reasons, whether we believe that's the right way, or we just say, you know what, F it, I'm just going to do this. Or I got to honor my parents, whatever way that happens. Um, so share with us how you ended up at BU and ended up studying journalism. Sure. Um, so I actually, just to give you an idea how distant I was from my parents, when I was, uh, my parents divorced my sophomore, junior year in college. And at that point, I, w- I pretty much made a decision that I'm going to be, I'm just, a, I'm an independent you know, freelancer in the household. I'm I'm going to do my own thing. My parents were are going to be footnotes in my life. Um, I was barely I barely had a relationship with e- either of them anyway. So I actually figured out how to apply for college and do all that on my own. And just to give you an idea how distant I was from from my mother, who I live with after the divorce, my mother did not know what colleges I had applied to until acceptance letters started coming in. So she the acceptance letters would come in. Oh, this came from uh, you know Rutgers University. I didn't know you'd apply to Rutgers. You know, it was like it was like that. Mm. So I just did my own thing. So, uh, and even this went as far as um, um, you know, a lot of my white friends because we lived in this suburb where you need to have a car to get around, mm. and uh, a lot of my white friends had their parents buy them cars. Right. I actually worked at a couple of grocery stores and ice cream store or whatever, and I paid. You know, I bought my own car because you know my mom. You know, I, I wasn't going to let my mom and dad deny me of that. Right. I, I was gonna. I was living my life on my own. So I went to BU, and I initially went to study sports broadcasting. I wanted to be the next, you know, Mike Breen or Bob Costas or you know one of those types of guys. And um, you know, very quickly I got really bored with sports. Uh, mm-hmm. Not not being a fan, but covering sports. And because you know, look, athletes are, you know, just like you and me. <laughs> sometimes they're interesting. Sometimes they're not. The difference is centuries ago, we made a decision as society to say athletes are going to be the most exceptional people among us. So, so let's stick cameras in their faces yep. you know, every time they do something, they go to work. Um, I think in a just world, it would be like doctors and scientists and police sure. officers and you know whatever that, that get that kind of a treatment. But we decided <laughs> a long time ago, if you can throw a ball into a hoop or you can take a stick and hit a ball 400 feet, like you're going to be... Yep. You know, um, and sometimes they're interesting, sometimes they're not. And I got kind of disillusioned with it. Um, and so, you know, but I was a sports director of the radio station in college and mm. did, you know, but I started really getting interested in documentary work. So that's, I spent a lot of my 20s working um, in production. Um, I 
you know, I, I was a documentary producer for the Boston Globe, and that was back when newspapers were really getting into doc producing. And then I worked for a couple of long-form magazine shows with NBC and Al Jazeera. And then my big break was, as you mentioned, getting hired at CBS to do um, – to cover the campaign. And so, uh, but college was, you know, was my first time truly being on my own. And there were some parts I did well and some parts I didn't do well. And if I could do it over again, I would have spent more time developing socially because I, and, mm. and coping better in that respect, um, rather than focusing so much on my resume, because, you know, I think we're conditioned, you know, to think that our entire worth is based on the degree we get, the paycheck, the, the kind of clout that comes with our professions. Uh-huh. And we don't, you know, I think this is an Asian culture thing. We don't spend enough time. Life is also about personal and social development. I mean, yeah. you can't, you can't, you never fall in love with your job because your job will never love you back, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there's this other side of life that exists that I didn't properly develop in college. I did after. That's why I started doing stand-up and started doing all this other stuff. But that's essentially what, what, what my college experience was like. It's funny you mentioned that because it's a topic that we talk about constantly and it's something that I've lived with for so long that in high school, parents encourage you to do extracurriculars just so that it looks good on your college application. Yes. It's not about whether you actually no. like doing it or not. So my yep. mom made me, you know, a Boy Scout or Little League or karate or whatever. And it was never actually about those things. It was about that she can tell other parents that I'm doing those things. <laughs> and B, it was about, okay. It'll develop skills of focus so the report cards will be good. Uh-huh. You know, and yeah. then it, and 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 so there was no it wasn't about whether I actually enjoyed the thing or not. Right. You know, um, and that that's a very again, that's a huge difference from the way my white friends are brought up. And and but that, you know, subtle or even deliberate training of the mind is still pervasive in the way that many of our peers view careers where it's Whatever it takes to get the next promotion, because I've only judged myself or my self-worth is tied to my title paycheck, logo on the paycheck, whatever, that we don't pursue things for the sake of pursuing it. We don't enjoy hobbies or, you know, it's if it doesn't make money, then it's not worth doing. And all these things that really take away from the exploration of the things that really make us whole. It's, it's fascinating because now people know you as the guy that writes about basketball and you're a stand-up comic and now you've written the book. And so they get this idea of you, you know, in your 30s as this, holy crap, he's living the dream. But, you know, you, you paid your dues running around and, and, you know, covering stories and perhaps fields and, and topics that you didn't resonate with. Um, when you signed on, wh- one of the things that's very unique about your experience um, covering Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign is – um, you are what I guess the local or the journalist called embeds. You were there from day one all the way to the end. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that as your time went along, you saw more peers on the bus as yeah. you know his candidacy became mm-hmm. a little bit more, a little bit more serious. Um, but share with us a, a few stories on when you got that assignment. What? Sure. And and from a I guess a, a particular lens of obviously we know who he is, and some of us have known that a little bit longer, um, but. Was the rest of the press corps as diverse as you would have hoped for? And how did that turn play into your sense of belongingness on the campaign trail? You know, I always joke that, you know, how, you know, how, how, how could you cover the Trump campaign as a person of color? Like, you know, wasn't that, you know, terrifying, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, 
I've been in newsrooms my whole career. I'm used to being in all white rooms, you know, like this is, this is, this is, you know, now, now, now I'm joking, obviously I'm being facetious, but, um, uh, so here, here's what happened. Uh, so I was working at, at CBS. Uh, I was a freelance producer for this uh, new streaming network they started called CBSN. And every four years they sent out uh, a call for embeds and to be a network embed is like, it's like the equivalent of a Harvard PhD in journalism. It's like one mm. of the most, you know, sought after jobs because you're covering a campaign, you have a front row seat, you get to kind of write your own ticket afterward. You're on the road for a year and a half and you're in more than 40 states. You might be covering the next president of the United States. And uh, I did, you know, it was very competitive. I, I suckered some people into hiring me and I was very, I was very lucky. Each embed, at least at CBS, was assigned um Four candidates. And the four candidates I was assigned were, were Rand Paul, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio. And they're like, well, you're going to be so busy with those guys. We're going to give you a fourth mm-hmm. one, but you don't have to worry about it. He's probably not even going to run, which, just in case, you know, uh, Donald Trump. And my reaction was, oh, I'm not going to have to worry about that at all, you know. And then within months, that changed very quickly. And, you know, so I was one of about five people that covered the campaign from start to finish in person. And it was exhausting. It was, I was mentally exhausted, physically exhausting. Uh, you know, I was, I was one of the only reporters of color in the press corps, not the only one, but one of the only ones. Um, and so, you know, the, the rallies were like kind of political rock, like political, you know, Woodstock essentially, um, you know, you have people lining up the night before they're at these big arenas. People are showing up dressed like them. They have signs, you know, one time, uh, a, 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 a Trump supporter like brought their baby to a rally and handed it the baby to Trump and had, the, had Trump sign the baby. I mean, I mean, you're seeing all kinds of stuff that, that you never has been seen in politics before. And the question, and I'm sure you're going to ask this, so I'm just going to preempt you here. Uh, did I think Trump was going to win? Um, and the answer is no. Uh, I also did not think his 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 candidacy was as fringe as everybody else. But as I thought about this question a lot over the last three years, the moment that I think of more than anything as the night I should have known that he was going to win, it was uh, December 2015 in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And uh, he's doing a big rally uh, at this uh, battleship called the USS Yorktown. In the middle of the day, we're all sitting up, a couple of reporters, we're sitting in a hotel lobby and I get a ping on my phone, an email ping. And I, and I open the phone and, and I read the email and I gasp. It's the original Muslim ban. It's that, it's that, it's that thing where he says, uh, we're doing a complete and total shutdown of Muslims coming into the United States until we figure out what the hell is going on. And that's in the middle of the day. And I'm just, I'm like, oh, this is the most, one of the most shocking press releases in the history of presidential politics. Yeah. So for hours, Trump is getting vilified. For, not I mean, just gets just getting killed from both sides of the aisle. You know, this is racism. This is fascism. What? What? You know, all the from both sides of the aisle. And the 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 theory, you know, among us, the press corps, like, oh, he's trying to lose now. You know, this it's it's like two months before Iowa. He's trying to he's trying to get he's trying to get killed here. Um, he he wants out of the campaign. He's trying to sink his poll numbers. And so how's he going to play this? What's he going to do at this rally tonight? And he comes out, uh, and there's probably about 1,500 people in the crowd. He comes out, 
And we're thinking he's going to come out and say, oh, the dishonest media, they, they misinterpreted my press release. They're so dumb. What I, what I really mean is we're going to keep like the terrorist Muslims out. I don't know, whatever, yeah. you know, like the typical whatever. Uh, instead, what he does is he takes out the piece of paper with the statement on it. He says, hey, guys, I sent out the statement earlier today. I'm going to read it for you. He reads it word for word to make clear this is exactly what he meant. And the crowd gives him a long standing ovation. And that was the moment I'm sitting in the back of the room in the, in the back of the ship and I'm looking around I'm like, oh, this is, this is not, I, I don't recognize this. I don't recognize this as the place I grew up in. And I didn't grow up in South Carolina, but I mean, the United States as a whole. And that was a really shocking thing to see in person. Uh, and I remember asking a whole bunch of people in the crowd that night, hey, like, what do you think of that, uh, the Muslim man? They're like, great, finally. You know, and um, and and there there's so much of that, and that was the night where I should have realized, oh, you know, this is not a fringe thing. There's a lot more of this in the country than you realize. Yeah, and that was a very 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 eye opening night. I still did not think that he was going to win the presidency. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he he didn't think he was going to win the presidency, right? So it was just a very uh, it was a very odd year and a half. It was exhausting. I mean, I kind of I needed a break from politics after the campaign. I couldn't do it anymore. Um, <laughs> I was just tired. I was burnt out. I was physically and mentally just exhausted. And so that's why I, I had to leave. You know, I turned down. CBS offered me a chance to go to the White House and cover, you know, mm. President Trump um, for D- in D.C. And, you know, I, I, the times came along and I, I had to leave. I had to go do something. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your interactions within the press corps and, and with the members of the campaign staff, because uh, I'll, I'll make a, a facetious here too, a bold claimant claim and say that Many of the people who come to these rallies could not tell you apart from any other person that they deemed brown. Mm. Um, a lot of his rhetoric was anti-brown, whether it was, uh, you know, our uh, Latinx friends or Muslims or any of that nature. Um, but there you are with yeah. and the the campaign team's known you since day one. Um, you're wearing a, a press badge. You have a camera. W- were there some stories that you can share about interactions in that regard? Yeah. Um, so. In terms of interactions with Trump supporters, uh, they were, for the most part, very, they're fine. Um, in terms of my personal one-on-one. Mm. At every rally, they turn around and boo you, you know, <laughs> yell at you or whatever. Sometimes people would get a little aggressive. One time, you know, somebody, you know, threw a water bottle at us and there was that kind of stuff. You occasionally, I think one time, a colleague of mine got shoved and, you know, there was some of that. Um it's ridiculous to even say this, but it's like 97, 98% of those interactions were fine. Mm. And that sounds like me trying to justify it, but like, yeah. in my, but why was there even a 2% right. you know, time when I wasn't feeling quite safe? At the time in my head, I, I rationalized it. I was like, yeah, we're, we're fine. Nothing's going to happen to us. But I mean, there were a couple of times when, for example, one time I got asked if I was a member of ISIS. Um, another time I got told to go back to Iraq where I came from. Um, I'm not Iraqi. I'm not Middle Eastern. I'm from New Jersey. You know, I'm Indian, you know, uh, at the time I hadn't even been to India. And, and so there was some, some of that stuff. Um, I covered a couple, couple non-Trump events, um, covered a little bit of Rubio, I covered a Bill Clinton event, a Bernie Sanders event. And it was never like that. There was, it wasn't even the, the, the smell of that, that kind yeah. of. 
talk. But you know, but it wasn't just that. You'd be at the in the press pen and you'd see people wearing, you know, Barack Obama's a Muslim t-shirts. You you you'd see, you know, uh Stuff like, you know, you'd, people would be yelling, Barack Obama's a Muslim, you know, blah, blah, blah stuff like that. You'd see a lot yeah. of that. Um, so it was, it was, it was at times really deeply uncomfortable. I, I, I will totally, I totally will cop to that. Um, and I think you also asked about my interactions with the other, my colleagues in the media. Yeah. Um, they're some of my best friends in the whole world. Um, uh, you spend more time with them than you do your own family. In fact, you right. barely see your family or friends in that year and a half. They're your family. You're always out to dinner. And it's odd. It's an odd dynamic because you guys are competing um, and you're not sure, you know, you have to kind of like, you know, I have this source, you know, you got <laughs> to be a little. And meanwhile, you like, you, you find out later that nobody actually has sources. And it's all, it's to Trump campaign. Trump is the source. You know, like it's all like the stuff that it's funny, you know, we all, you know, we're, four, you know, we're three or four years older now since we covered the campaign. We all, we're all still in touch. And, and, and we laugh about some of the stuff that like, we seemed like such a big deal at the time. And, uh, but they're some of my best, my best friends. Um, and you know, you were, and, and they're, they're your family when you travel. Mm. You know, for, for what it's worth, I am glad and, and thankful and grateful to you and, and so many reporters and, and media people out there who, bring a different lens, an additional lens, not a different lens, but additional context to the storytelling of politics, which is an extremely American narrative, particularly now, you know, as we're dealing with this pandemic. And unfortunately, a lot of the focus has been on um, Asian American people and blame and scapegoating and all that stuff. What we hope for, what we pray for are people like you, who not only are representing us from a visual perspective, but are making sure that the reporting is fair it's it's ridiculous that i have to say this but not that it's only fair but it's not um hurtful or it's not you know um in, inciting fear what i wonder is you know at some point in the near future you know congressional and down ballot races are going to heat up and i'm and look i'm going to be honest i you hate to you had to even think about this i mean look are there that many asian americans that are national political reporters i can think of I, I can think of like five off the top of my head. Not enough. Not yeah. enough, right. But of those five, the ones that are going to be going to events, you know, um, particularly Republican events where, you know, you see a lot more of like the kind of anti-China rhetoric that you, mm -hmm. you know, how are those interactions going to go for them? Right? And I'm not, you know, I'm sure very likely they'll go fine, but but you hate even thinking, well, but some some people might not sure. be very nice to them. Yeah. You know, and you hate to even think like that, right? I 100% agree. I, I have a, a mentee or somebody that I know who is uh, works for the local Fox station in South Carolina, and, and therefore when she pre you know when she covered the, the primary and stuff, you know a lot of her coverage made it onto Fox News, and she shared it on, on Facebook. And I was like, and I, I I worry about you because mm. it's I, it's not you; it's about everybody else, right? Right? And, totally. and and I hope that your cameraman, that your fellow people, that you know, even just the verbal jabs as you mentioned that. They'll say like it was a joke. What's the big deal? But dude, words hurt, and words have meaning behind them. So, um, I I'll tell you a story. Um, yeah, uh, I've I've never told the story publicly. Um, uh, I won't name names, but um, so when someone told me to go back to Iraq, I was steaming mad. I was really angry. I had to like, you know, I had to calm myself down. Uh. And I remember, you know, later, 
the embeds are asking me, you know, what's wrong? And I told them what happened. And a Trump campaign official is, uh, is happens to be staying nearby. He says, what happened? And I tell him what happened. You know, one of your supporters told me to go back to Iraq where I came from. He goes, well, uh, now you know what it's like when reporters write that Trump is a Nazi. And I was like, uh, do, do you know the difference? What? And, you know, like I was just so flabbergasted. I was just so flabbergasted by the interaction that I, 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 I couldn't. Um, wow. I, I could. I, you know, and, and that that moment has always stuck with me since since it happened. Sorry, sorry, you had to go through that, man. It's, it's. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's true. You know, what aboutism, right? Like distract, distract, and you know, points at, at the next shiny thing, and then hopefully people lo- lose sight of it. Um, but anyway, congratulations on your PhD in, in political, uh, <laughs> yeah, political journalism. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe uh, your Indian parents and family are, are finally happy you got a PhD in, in, in <laughs> yeah, that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and let's talk about uh, the last couple of years. So after the campaign, um, you, you've done, you started out at BU uh, with the dreams and or the, the desire to do something in the world of sports. You took an extremely roundabout way, paying <laughs> your dues, doing um, good work, uh, challenging work. And now as the culture writer for the New York Times, um, you get to meet, uh, interview, talk about, write about something that you grew up loving. And many of us really, really love that right now we're because of what's going on, it's temporarily at a pause. But um, how how did you fall into that and um, take us through that emotional journey of, dude, you, you have like every kid's dream job right now. So fall into that is the perfect way to put it. Um, look, I have, I feel very strongly that I've earned everything that has happened to me. I mean, I had to, I had to deal with quite a bit of adversity in my 20s, getting laid off, you know, being unemployed a bunch, you know. Um, so... You know, some people have had much harder journeys. Some people have had much easier journeys. In my case, you know, there, there, there were certain things that I feel very rarely have things been handed to me. I've had to work really hard for it. Right. And the reason I mentioned that is that this job is not one of those things. <laughs> um, um, so when I got hired at the Times, uh, I was hired to write about culture. So culture is film, TV, theater, uh, comedy, art, dance. And I was like, this is perfect. Get me out of politics for a little while. Um, and they knew I do stand up. I'm, I'm also a musician. Um, I play the piano. They all knew they, they, so they felt like they won't, you know, that I'd be a good fit. And then two years. And I also love basketball. I grew up obsessed with basketball. I'm still obsessed with basketball. Um, I love being a fan of the game. And about two years into the gig, uh, the New York Times hires a new sports editor, this uh, wonderful guy named Randy Archibald. And he knew I loved basketball. And every now and then I'd contribute to the section or whatever. But as soon as he gets hired, he asked me to meet with him once. So I go over, you know. And it's actually uh, in late in the evening. It's like 7.30. And I remember I was at a bar nearby. I had a couple glasses of wine and with with a friend and you know and i got to eat i got a text from him he says hey why don't you uh, hey do you ever are you around i'd like to meet with you really quickly i said uh, yeah yeah sure so you know i quickly pay the bill i run back and i'm like oh, you know am i does he have compromising information on me like <laughs> is there something and he and he says to me he says hey listen uh, i i just started uh, as a new sports editor i would like you to be the new nba writer for the Whoa. times and 
at first I was like, was he at the bar with me? Like, did I like, was he, you know, what, like I was, I think one of his, I think I was his first hire. And I, uh, I told him, I think about it. Um, and I was like, cause I also had these very harsh memories of covering sports in college. And I remember what it's like to deal with professional athletes. And I know what it's like to deal with the agents and whatnot. And, you know, but then I was like, how could you, how could you turn this down? I mean, you, um, the thing I love about the times that we don't like, we're not in, uh, we're not covering day-to-day basketball, right? We're kind of t- mm-hmm. looking at everything from 10,000 feet away. And that's great. I, I love that. I love that. I can still be a fan of the game without being like in every single locker room, every single night. Right. I love that. Um, so he hired me and that, so I've been writing about basketball and, and, and since I started the beat, the China thing happened before the season, mm. right? With Daryl Morey's tweet, uh, several star players got injured. Um, uh, you had uh, Kobe Bryant's uh, passing, David Stern's passing, and then coronavirus. All in one year for me on the NBA beat. And I'm just wondering between this and like the Trump campaign, you know, do I just attract crazy stories wherever, <laughs> whatever beat I go to? In fact, one of my last stories I covered on the culture beat before I left for the NBA beat was um, the very strange Jesse Smollett story. Oh, wow. And so I just attract weirdness, man, wherever, wherever, whatever beat I go to. Hey, hey man, you, you live to tell good stories for, for a long time. Um, <laughs> quick, quick tangent. It brings me a lot of joy and really makes me happy that you at the New York Times and Arash Markazi over here at the LA Times, who covers similar storylines in the world of sports, um, are people that look like me and you. And yeah, I think and that adds, great. That, that, um, yeah, that adds so much context to the content that you guys write about well, right i mean he, te- he teaches over at usc yeah he teaches at usc yeah that's right. how we had cross yeah. paths yeah so you've interviewed through your many many years of covering sports um trump obviously you've interviewed ceos household names um two years ago you had a couple interview um interviewees who you knew a little bit better but also didn't know very much at all. And those are your mom and dad. And then so share with us what was the impetus for you wanting to interview them and not only just interview them because that's a conversation that I think many of us want to have, but to write a book about it. Yeah. So as I turned 30, I realized that I had not seen my father in 11 years and I had not seen my mother in four years. Um, and as I began writing this book that you've been referring to, um, which I, I'm going to give a quick plug to. Um, it's called Mistranslations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. Um, I realized, I mean, I didn't even know where they were living. Mm. And I didn't know basic facts about them. Birthday, age, how they met, how they came to this country, extended family, what they were like as children, what their aspirations were, what they were up to at the, that day, right? And here's the basic calculation for why I decided to try to find them and reconnect with them. I did not want them to die without me knowing something about them. Because look, you get to a certain age in life, maybe it's 70, maybe it's 75. And, you know, kind of your, your time is, is close to running short at that point. Let's just be honest here. Right. And so that was definitely the case. I didn't know exactly how old my parents were, but I knew they were getting up there. 
And so I want to find them because I was worried that I'd get a call one day. And the thing I, you know, I haven't really talked about that much is that, so I was in touch with my dad in that we spoke once a week and there were these stilted kind of awkward conversations that would last a couple of minutes and we don't know it because we had nothing to talk about. But a big fear I've always had in that period where we weren't speaking is that one day I'm going to pick up the phone and it's going to be, you know, one of those like 15 digit numbers from India. That's because that's mm-hmm. what he's called from India. And uh, it's going to be oh, someone telling me that he died. And that's something. And so I didn't want that to happen without him passing on something of himself to me. And some context here also is my, my dad, he moved to India my freshman year at BU without telling anybody. He just left. And then I never asked him where he went, why he went, you know, and then, and then for 11 years, we just kind of didn't have a relationship. And so um, that is essentially the impetus for why I decided to write the book. And, and the book is essentially a documentation of that process because I, I felt like, okay, this was kind of a little bit of an unusual journey. You might as well figure it out and, 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 and write it down somehow. And that's where this all came from. I, a friend, Anirudh, had told me about your book and I, and I read the, the prompt for it and then, you know, read as much as I could about it. And like, it was like 10,000 light bulbs went in my head. I'm like, oh my God, this is what we talk about on the show. And this is why I did the show. Not because, sure, there's a lot of gaps in my parents' stories and um, reading your book has actually really motivated me to even think about how I want to get those answers mm. answered for me. Uh, but part of doing this show and, and documenting this is, so that my kids don't ever wonder what the hell did dad do in his thirties, and, <laughs> right. and you know, for and for all of my friends who come on the show, right? Like, right. at least this is one conversation. You're like, okay, in 2020, this is what was in his mind, and then at least leave something because for so many immigrant kids, and it's a lot of parents, not just immigrant kids, but particularly, I think it happens more in our communities where people just don't share. Um, but it's not that we're trying to learn about our parents; we're actually trying to learn more about ourselves because. They made us. They raised us, and 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 as you alluded to earlier, there are just a lot of emotional gaps in the things that you lived, but just mm-hmm. couldn't make sense of at the time. I'll tell you a story. Um, when I was in India, when we were in India, this is my then girlfriend, now fiance, Wesley. Um, at one point, um, I asked my dad, "Hey, Dad, I'm going to turn the camera on you, a video game. I want you to leave a message for your grandchildren, just in case. Who knows when we'll see you again." Um, who knows, um, you know, who knows if you'll be around when we have kids, but just in case I want you to tape a message to them, give them some advice on how to live life. And he says, um, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, um, your kids should know about India. And, uh, and, uh, I'm like, dad, no, no, no. I want you to give advice on how they should live. Like he was giving a very academic answer, right? Oh, they should know the history of India. He says it again. No, I got nothing else to say. I want them to know the history of India. And I was kind of frustrated by the answer because I was like, who cares about the history? I want them to, you know, uh, who cares about the history of India? I want you to give them a little, something about like kindness or be, you know, work hard or something. And I realized something is that what my dad meant by tell them about India he didn't want to admit this, but what he meant was tell them about me, tell them about who I am. Because I think for the last 11 years, last 30 years, because of our lack of a relationship, he always thought, he always had this assumption that he was never, he, you know, once he passed away, that was it for people that would remember who he was because he lives in oh, one wow. India, right? 
And in that moment, I realized that like he was too proud as typical Asian parents are to like admit that level of vulnerability. But what he really meant to say was, I, I want you to tell your children, my grandchildren, who I was, because wow. I worry that they will not know. And that has always struck with me. That that's always that's always stuck with me. And, he, and he's never articulated that, but I realized it in, in in that moment. And it and so that that that's something that I will remember for the rest of my life. That's a, that's a beautiful moment, and it's there's so much in that, like you said, right? And um, once our readers read the book, you, you come from a proud lineage of people who built towns and governed and um, influential people. So that that especially in that culture of patriarchal lineage um it means a lot and your name means a lot in certain parts of the world and for those of us growing up here it's yeah it's just a bunch of you know letters but it means more back home and i think you know i i think about too i have a three-year and a one-year-old and it's i i want them to be confident but i also don't ever want them to feel confused and, you know, have the same discussions that you and I are having about identity and confusion yes. and, and yeah. then having a difference between these are my white friends' parents and how they act and, you know, but also we don't want to lose ourselves in our identity and just try to be those white parents, right? Because that loses a little bit of us. Right. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about your parents' reaction to you writing the book. Mm-hmm. And since you finished it, and have done, you know, interviews about it, have written about it. Um, you were gracious enough to share a copy of the book with me. Have you shared the book with them? And what has been their reaction? Um, so a couple of things here. First of all, I was upfront with them from when I reached out shortly after that I was going to document this in a, in a book if, uh, or in written form in some way. At first, I thought about doing it as a documentary, mm. but then... Uh, I thought, you know, shoving cameras in immigrant parents' faces might have been a little bit intrusive. And and but neither of my parents are particularly media literate. So it's not like, you know, you know, they they in terms of you mentioned interviews and stuff that I don't know that they've seen them because they're not on Twitter, they're not on Facebook, they're not, you know, they're not like surfing the web and reading the news, right? Um to your question about whether they've read the manuscript, they did. Uh, they read it about a year ago, almost to the date. And look, they had complicated reactions to it. Because part of the book, part of I think Asian, you know, a lot of Asian cultures, um, is is an inability to communicate feelings at home, yeah. right? Like you know, you know, my white friends were like, you know, they'd go talk to their parents about depression and you know sadness or crushes or whatever, and uh, you know, I didn't have that. I know a lot of my Asian friends didn't have that, and to see all this laid out in stark detail in written form was difficult for both of them. Mm. The other part I would say is that a process like this requires you to look inward and everyone has varying willingness and ability to do that. Um, And so part of this was all of us had to look inward and not everyone can do it at that, you know, at a, you know, for me, part of the book was admitting my own failures, my own Mm. ways that I wronged my parents and and for them, you know, I'm not sure that they, you know, ever to vary to varying points, they both, you know, had their own regrets about the way things worked out. My dad had a very funny reaction to reading the manuscript. 
which was, um, he reads it, um, you know, and look, if we wrote four different versions of mistranslations, it would be four drastically different books, right? This is just the best that I can do with my story, my side of the story. And my dad says, you know, I'm proud of you. You wrote a book. Like, how cool is that, right? Like in a very Asian parent way, like, whoa, this is such an accomplishment. Wow, right? Then he goes, um, you've inspired me. I'm going to write my own book. And so for the last year, he actually has been working on his own autobiography. And he's like, your English, wow. your English is so good. I want your, I'm going to send you my notes and you want, want you to help me with it and turn this into good English. I'm like, dad, okay. All right, dad, whatever, whatever you want. Um, and I thought that, I thought that was, I thought that was very, very, a very funny reaction from my dad. Um, but I think ultimately everyone in my family, whether they agreed with the conclusions or not, understood, understood what I was trying to do and say. And, and that's the best you can ask for from any of, any of, you know, the, the title is 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 almost perfect, right? Because when we think about the word translations, it's more times than not in just a language to language, right? Um, English to Bengali, Korean to English, what have you. But the translations that were missed in your life with respect to your parents was far beyond the language because language wasn't really the issue. Right. right? It, was, right. it was the cultural, it was the generational, it was just... No, Emotion. in fact, I am bilingual. I my Bengali. I'm fluent in Bengali. Um, the funny thing about the title is where it came from was uh, Wesley uh, and I were out to drinks one night, really early, early in the process, maybe a month after we got the book deal, well before the book was done, early on in writing, and we're like, "What should we call this thing?" And and Wesley just says, "All right, let's have a placeholder title. We'll just call it like mistranslations or something. I don't know." <laughs> And I'm like, okay, we should probably give it a subtitle. She's like, I don't know. It was just something like, um, why don't we do like, I don't know, meeting the immigrant parents who raised me or something. I'm like, yeah, all right, that's fine. Yeah, just a total stopgap title and we'll come back to it. And then for the next like year, we never came up with anything better. And then as each month went by, we were like, we love this title. It's perfect title. And and most people spend a lot of time trying to come up with the perfect book title. Yeah, Wesley came up with this on the first try and we never the various formulations never got any better after that and so i'm very grateful to wesley for very various reasons but she is the one responsible for the book's title and subtitle <laughs> you know i i in, in your book we find out where she went to school and what she does for a living which is always the the joking part of uh those of us who didn't follow that path uh as as our parents wishes were and there's a a lot of uh pride in a way from your dad as he as he shares it with one of his siblings of you know where she uh what she does and where she went to school and i think that's so it's such a heartwarming part of uh the way our, our parents show us love and show us you know it, it's something that i think only those of us who've gone through it and have lived in these households can understand um many of our listeners whether they be going through adolescence themselves or early career may have feelings of mistranslations amongst themselves with their parents. And we also might have listeners who are speaking from the parents' angle um, who feel like they've already missed these translations or, uh, like myself, parents of very young children who desperately want to avoid these things. Um, what, what bits of perspective and advice can you give to us to ensure um, we have these conversations up front and often? So the two things, the one I wish I mentioned already, which is you have to look inward. A lot of immigrant kids, I think, um, particularly people of our generation, they 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 look at their situations and goes, he, go, here's how my immigrant parents 
wronged me. Here's what they deprived me of compared to what my white friend's parents did. And that's and and there are there are strands of truth to it, of course, but there isn't the empathy that comes from, well, why did that happen? Yeah. What 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 is the experience that your parents brought to the table? So looking inward and being empathetic are are very, very important traits. Um, look, communication is really, you know, it's difficult, but it's also paramount. Um, it, it's, it's really important to communicate from, you know, as much as often as you can. I also think that, um, counseling and mental health is something that goes very under addressed in immigrant households and particularly, and I think that's something, you know, that we should encourage more, you know, my mom struggled with depression so much. And when I grew up with, grew up. And in her entirety of her life, she's dealt with so much in terms of mental health stuff, et cetera. Uh, you know, I wonder how much different her life would have been if, if you know, she got started seeing a therapist, you know, when she was in her 20s, in the way a lot of us do, right? In the yeah. way, but she didn't even have the language. I think that a really important thing to remember, if you have immigrant parents that maybe you're not that close with or you're frustrated with or whatever, the generation before you and I, they came here to get to the end of the day. They came here to survive. They came here like they were worried about putting feeding you guys, us, at the end of the day. Well, you and I, uh, and, and this is, I'm being presumptuous here. I, I will say for myself, I grew up in a middle-class suburb in New Jersey. I had the space to, to, to pursue, um, oh, I want to be a stand-up comedian. I, I'm going to do that. I'm going to watch Whose Line Is it Anyway. I'm going to do that. Um, I, I, uh, I'm sad today. I'm going to think about my sadness. I'm happy today. I have a crush on, on Rachel from school. I'm going to, I'm going to think about that. That's a freedom that our, my parents did not have. And, and this is something I write in the book. It's a kind of privilege that I never realized I had because yeah. you don't think about it. You right. know? It really is something, you know, that like, do I think my parents would have loved to spend their 15, you know, from 15 to 30, you know, thinking about what career advancement and, uh, you know, and dating and, and doing all that stuff. I don't know, but they also, there's, they don't even have the language to think about that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, they don't even know that that was, when I asked my mom and my dad, what did you want to do when you were growing? When you were 11, did you want to be an astronaut? What did you want to do? What is it? What is it that you saw for your life? And she, neither of them understood the question. Like, I don't, right. what do you mean? Like, I don't, what do you mean? Yeah. What do I want to do? I didn't, that's not what we thought about back then. And they still don't have the language to think about it like that. Right. So imagine what, what that makes you like as a parent. Right. Right. Anyway. So those are, those are, uh, that's, I hope that's helpful. No, so fun. I, I think it's fantastic. Look, we went from survival to the audacity to dream about self-actualization in one generation. Yeah. That's never happened in the history of anybody. Right. Right. And so of course we don't know how to deal with that stuff. Right. Like there's so many layers to that. And I think our parents didn't realize that either, that there's, you know, there's struggles and, and the world advanced so quickly during the times we grew up, right. With technology and with everything. So we, we had a leg up, but you know, it's, it's, both ways. We don't understand what they went through and how they see the lens. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned a lot about uh, in, in the book, too, about your mom's um, unfamiliarity with technology. Mm. Dude, like we expect it now. But like, can you imagine if we had to learn something from scratch now Totally. or move my to a new mom, country now? My mom, I think, was around, let's say, 50s, 60s when she came to me one day and said, I need you to teach me how to use a computer. 
This is someone who had never turned on a computer in her life. It's 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 unfathomable to me. You know, my mother still lives today. She doesn't have apps on her phone. She barely knows how to text. For, imagine living in a world right now without apps, without knowing how to text. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like she still relies on her landline to like yeah. call people. Like that's it's really hard to live in the U.S. in the 21st century without having a proper understanding of technology. But that's something I think a lot of immigrant parents deal with that people don't even mm-hmm. realize, right? Yeah. Because we we are so conditioned to do everything online. Like if you were taping a podcast with my mom and you'd be like, "Hey, all right, all right, Mrs. Deb, can you can you open up the Zoom file?" Like she wouldn't know what. <laughs> I'd have to show up at her house with a microphone. Yeah, that's right. Which which might make you know for for fun <laughs> conversation too. But yeah, she has a laptop. I don't. It's it's such an old laptop that I don't even know if it has a microphone on it. Like, <laughs> like I don't even know if it's physically. She is physical physically capable right now of like recording a Zoom podcast right now. Ah, we'll get it however we can. Yeah, um, that's right. So so, Pan, thank you so much for spending your time with us. Um, we're recording this Saturday. Your book's your book comes out Tuesday. There's already a lot of rave reviews. Um, USA Today is a not-to-miss book. Um, you've done the the press tours and NPR and, and so many various organizations. Um, you work for the New York Times. That obviously helps, you know, get the word out there. You have an amazing fan base across the political genre, the sports genre, um, and pretty much, I dare to say, a lot of Asians rooting for you because I think as the word gets out, you've done us a great service of even allowing us to dream about having some of these conversations with our parents. Um, it goes back to, I didn't know what I was missing in my life. Um, sure. So yeah, I, thank well, you. I, 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 yeah. I was gonna say, Oh, I'm, I'm actually uh, grateful that you're having me on because you know, a lot of, uh, look how, how many spaces like this exist for us, you know? And I'm so grateful that you, you started the show that, that you are making an effort to give people that look like me, people that look like us, a space to be able to talk about this in a way that is not as, I don't, I don't, I don't feel a need to like explain shit as much. Like, you know, it's nice, like, nice to say something and then you're like, no, no, yeah, no, I get it. You know, I get it. You know, it's nice. So I, I thank you for having me today. I'll give the listeners a clue. As, as you read the book, there, there's some gems in there about pop culture references and, uh, my two favorite cartoons growing up, I watch religiously. And one of my favorite comedy shows is also Sopan's favorite. So um, if, if you're a 30 something year old, uh, you're like, oh my God, this is great. <laughs> um, so I, I, I want to end the show the way we end all of our shows, uh, which is an homage back to the name of the show. And the Asian Americans ultimately is a love letter to us and from us um, and for all of us. Um, really having these conversations that we wish we had when we were growing up. And for many of us, we didn't know that we were allowed to have these discussions. Um, so whether it be to, um, you know, high school Sopan or your future children or my future children, um, share with us something that you want to share uh, with the Asian American community. So if you could help us finish out the show and finish out the letter, dear Asian Americans. Sure. Uh, so am I writing to myself or anybody? Okay. But it, but it can be to myself if I want it to be. Sure. Of course. Oh, yep. Okay. Okay. Got it. Um, okay. Dear 18 year old Sopan. Um, there, uh, everything seems like it's the biggest deal in the world right now from, uh, you know, from a rejection letter to getting dumped or whatever, all of this 
will seem like a blip. And everything that you think is going to happen in your life uh, that you've mapped out very carefully for yourself, graduate at 21, be engaged at 25, get married at 27, have a kid by 30, you know, uh, be all that stuff. That's, <laughs> it's okay for things to not go according to plan because it rarely does. And you have to be okay with that. And that is what I would tell my a younger version of myself. Thank you. And as you've experienced and publicly shared, and as I've experienced, and so many of us have, uh, getting fired from a job is not the end of the world. Switching jobs is not the end of the world. Doing things, experiencing things, the ups and downs, it's what all of us go through. The people that you think are so successful and they're so happy, there's so many sides of them that they'll never share because it's rooted in perceived shame because it's not really shame. It's just, you know, you being a human being. Look, you, you wrote this amazing book, you know, in your early 30s. Um, the rest of us cannot wait until you write more. We cannot wait for basketball to pick up again. Um, basketball, writing for a big, big newspaper will not be your final stop. Um, let's hope that we can get through these challenging times so you can run around the country sharing this book with a lot of audiences. Um, and I urge, 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 um, more than encourage, please do. Go check out the book, Mistranslations. By the time you're listening to this, it should be available. Um, if you have access, well, this should be shut down. Order from your local books or online if you can. Let's support those businesses. If you absolutely must, yeah, fine, go buy it on Amazon. But, you know, leave a review, uh, whether it is on Amazon, whether it is on Goodreads. Um, that, those things matter, um, not only for, um, obviously, for, for Sopan, who, who's done the writing of the job of creating this work, but for other people to find it. And this is a story that I don't know if the majority of America is ready to hear or read, but if you care enough about the Asian American immigrant experience to listen to this podcast, I guarantee you it's a story that you need to hear and that you're going to want to share with your friends for sure. And even if, and if you're bold enough, maybe send your parents a copy. So, so Pan, thanks again. Thank you for having me, man. It was great to do this. May we no longer have any mistranslations between our generations and our children. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sopan as much as I did having it with him. I think we can all relate and think about the times where we wanted to know a little bit more about our parents, maybe even our grandparents too, about life back home from wherever we came, and even just the circumstances and the reasons of why we immigrated in some of the early years, especially when our early childhood memories aren't as clear as we'd like them to be. What an amazing book. Uh, what an amazing story. If you are hearing this and you want to check it out, go buy the book, Mistranslations. Support your local bookstore if you can. I know it's challenging times right now to go anywhere to buy the book physically. When you get the book, uh, please be sure to share it on social. Tag Sopan. Uh, all of his handles are going to be in the show notes. Let him know what you thought about the book. Uh, from my time getting to know him, he genuinely cares about his readers, about his fans. And I know he'll make the time to talk to you about the book. If this episode resonated with you, if the show, The Urged Americans, resonates with you, please be sure to subscribe, uh, leave us a comment, leave us a rating on Apple. But more importantly, please take a moment to share it with a friend or two. It really does mean a lot to me. Check us out on Instagram and on Facebook at The Urged Americans. Follow the links to the website where you can subscribe to the show or find out how you can apply to be on the show yourself. As always, thank you so much. And from wherever you may be listening, I hope you are safe. I hope you are healthy. Until next time, this has been your host, Jerry Wan.